Welcome back to the RCF podcast. I'm here once again with Randall Curtis, the pastor of Frenchtown Church in East Greenwich. Welcome back, Randall. Good to be back. So last time you were on the podcast, we asked the question, does God have to love me? And you answered that. So if our listeners haven't listened to that episode, that's going to be helpful for this episode, right? Because that's going to lead us into this question of, has God always treated everyone the same? And that's the tough topic that we're going to deal with today. But I would encourage you, if you haven't listened to the previous episode from last week on Does God Have to Love Me, go back and listen to that and then listen to this episode. Yes, that would be wise. (laughs) All right. So, Randall, question is, has God always treated everyone the same? Yeah. So to me, it's a really good question. It's a really basic question that we need to ask in order to understand Scripture. You can't Mm -hmm. understand the Bible without understanding that question. Of course, it's important to say we are not saying that God has changed. So God has not changed. Mm-hmm. Also, God's character has not changed over time. So like Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Mm-hmm. So we want to uphold that truth. But on the other hand, we are saying that over time, God has changed how he relates to people. And there's all these theological debates over it. There's different viewpoints. Covenantalism and dispensationalism are the traditional viewpoints. Mm-hmm. Now there's also other big viewpoints. Progressive dispensationalism and progressive covenantalism is the newest one. But I, I want to kind of point out some easy examples that we would all agree where God has changed how he relates to people, just mm-hmm. so we can establish that as a principle in Scripture that you have to be aware of. You know, it's really helpful to go back to the early chapters of Genesis. Here we see some of the really early changes, the obvious changes that God has made. I mean, if you think of the Garden of Eden, everything is happiness and joy. It appears like God is communing with Adam and Eve without any barriers at all. He gives people almost total freedom, and he gives them eternal life. They eat from the tree of life, and they are good forever. But then there's the fall, Adam and Eve sin. And here immediately, God begins to distance himself from people. He takes away their eternal life by separating them from the tree of life. He condemns them to death. And he curses human beings in many ways. If you read the list of curses in Genesis chapter 3, it's a pretty extensive list of ways that God is changing how he relates to people and how he's set up the created world. And he used to walk with Adam in the garden, as it said, and and we don't see that after. Yeah, so immediately, just because of Adam and Eve's sin, how God relates to people is changed overnight. And that's a very obvious change that you can't argue with. God changes how he relates to people right then. Then in chapter 4, Cain murders Abel, which is awful, right? And God banishes Cain. This is something he hasn't done before. I mean, sort of banished Adam and Eve from the garden, but here he's banishing Cain. It seems to be he's banishing him maybe even from the rest of the family. It also says, uh, you are cursed, alienated from the ground that open up its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. So here he is disrupting the relationship between Cain and the ground itself so that Cain could no longer farm. That's what Cain loved to do. He was a farmer. And then in uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 15, it says that God will punish anybody who harms Cain. So these are all new things that God has not done before. So God is relating to human beings differently now after Cain murders Abel. And notice how he treats murder. It seems like he declares murder to be wrong, but the punishment is banishment and a curse on the ground. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Then over the next chapter or two, human beings kind of degenerate even further. And human society just falls into chaos and evil. And God doesn't like what he sees. And so he decides to wipe out all human beings from earth except Noah and his family. Mm -hmm. Again, this is something God has not done before. A flood. 
massive global flood. So here's a new way God is relating to people by mm-hmm. destroying them all. Then after the flood, God institutes a lot of changes. It's really interesting. In Genesis 8:21, it says, The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of Noah's sacrifice and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans. So remember, when Adam sinned, he cursed the ground. When Cain sinned, he cursed the ground. But now God says, going on into the future, I will no longer do that. This will no longer be a way that I will relate to human beings by cursing the ground. God goes on, he says, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. So he says, here's this thing that I have done, which is destroy everything with a flood. He says, I'm not going to do that again. In Genesis 9, uh, he puts fear of human beings on all the animals and tells the human beings that they can eat meat now. Before that, they were supposed to only eat plants, fruit. And then verses 5 and 6 of chapter 9, he institutes capital punishment for murder. And this is important. Remember how he treated Cain. He banished Cain. But now God says, you know what? When murder happens, you should put the murderer to death. With Cain, God threatened punishment on anybody who harmed Cain. Right. He protected Cain. Yeah. Here, he says, hey, if you commit murder, you're going to die. So he changes how he relates to people and how here's he kind of changed how you handle rules like murder. So murder hasn't changed, but how you what you do about murder has changed. And then, you know, chapter 11, you got the Tower of Babel where he separates languages and people. And this wasn't a thing before. People all spoke the same language and all hung out together. Now he splits them by language. And now you've got new people groups. So now God is relating to different people groups. Then in chapter 12, you've got the call of Abram, and this starts the story of redemption, the main story of the Bible, and then from here on out, how God handles the story of redemption and what changes are made and what things are kept the same. That's where when people start to really disagree. But obviously, the call of Abraham is a major change in how God relates to human beings. And, you know, so then the Old Testament law comes along, right? You've got the dietary restrictions, You've got sacrificial regulations so people can't eat pork and, you know, they have to do all these different sacrifices. But then Jesus comes along in the New Testament and in Mark 7, he declares all foods clean. So these dietary restrictions that have been around for 1,400 years, Jesus says, no, not anymore. No more dietary restrictions. And then this sacrificial system that's been around for 1,400 years, Jesus becomes the ultimate sacrifice and all those sacrifices are gone. We don't do them anymore. So those are big changes. First, the institution of those things. And then when Jesus comes along, he ends them. And they're fulfilled in Jesus in different ways. Mm-hmm. And, of course, how people understand that change is different depending on your particular view. But we all agree that something changed there. Mm-hmm. God changed how he related to people there. Now, I thought I would throw out a really interesting, controversial example. All right? So this is one that maybe people find a little troubling. And that's why I wanted to mention it. You know, we love it. Okay, Jesus ended the sacrificial system. Yay! You know, but here's one that people might find a little, you know, peculiar, different. In Exodus chapter 34, it says God came down in a cloud. His glory passes in front of Moses. It's a very famous, important passage. One of the most important passages in all the Bible. So this is God's description of himself. And he says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now, up to this point, everyone's saying, Amen. Amen. We like that. Yeah, we love it. (laughs) Give us more of that. But then God goes on. He says, Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So there's a couple of things going on here. One is this idea of passing guilt on from one generation to the next. 
I don't know if passing guilt on is the exact way to express it, but God says, I'm going to punish your kids for what you do wrong, which that's a significant threat to people at that time. They cared a lot about what happened to their children. And so it's a major threat to them if when God says, hey, you mess up, not only are you going to feel it, but your kids are going to feel it, and your grandkids are going to feel it, and your great-grandkids are going to feel it. So it makes you hopefully not want to mess up. <laughs> right. That was the point. Yeah. So that's one thing that's going on. Another thing that's going on is God's expressing the idea of how he's treating nations as nations. He's taking people as an entire people group. Mm-hmm. So his people at the time were Israel as a nation, not just individuals, though he related to individuals. But he was also relating to Israel as an entire nation, as an entire people. Mm-hmm. That's part of what's going on there with punishing the children and all that sort of stuff is because he's treating the nation as a single entity. So if one generation messes up, the next generation in that entire country is going to feel it. And you can actually see examples of this in Scripture, which none of these examples are particularly nice for us to read today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got Korah, who rebelled against God. And in Numbers chapter 16, Moses had everyone move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram had come out and were standing with their wives, children, and little ones at the entrance to their tents. That's important. Mm -hmm. They were there with their kids, and it mentions little ones, so maybe they were babies. And then it goes on in number 16, verses 31 and 32. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all those associated with Korah together with their possessions. So it wasn't just Korah himself that was judged. It was his family, everybody around him. Yeah, all got swallowed up. And that's hard for us to compute today because Mm -hmm. we don't think in terms of judging a people or a family as a group. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's how God was working with his people at this time, as by family units and clans and tribes and whole nations. Then you get to Deuteronomy 28. This is a really powerful section in the law where God says, okay, I've given you all these rules. Now I'm going to tell you, here's a list of blessings that you'll receive if you keep the law. And if you don't keep the law, here's a list of curses. And here is the most frightening set of curses from that list. In Deuteronomy 28, starting at verse 53, because of the suffering your enemy will inflict on you during the siege. So he's saying, okay, so if you disobey me, I'm going to send an enemy and they will lay siege to Jerusalem. And this is what will happen during the siege. He says, you will eat the fruit of the womb, the flesh of the sons and daughters the Lord your God has given you. Even the most gentle and sensitive man among you will have no compassion on his own brother or the wife he loves or his surviving children. And he will not give to one of them any of the flesh of his children that he is eating. So he says he's the kindest person is going to cook and eat his own children. And he's going to be so desperate and starving that he won't share it, the meat of his own child with his brother and his, his own wife. So this is terrifying. This is the type of stuff that happens in war, makes war not very pretty. And God says, this is what's going to happen to you. It's going to be so bad that your kids are going to die. In fact, you're going to kill your own kids in order to eat them. Again, this is one of those things. It's not very pretty to think about. And then when you get all the way to the siege of Jerusalem, the Jews disobey God consistently throughout the Old Testament. And so God does bring upon them all the curses that he promises he will bring. And you can see this in the book of Lamentations, which most people assume was written by Jeremiah the prophet, who lived through the siege of Jerusalem. He actually saw these curses being fulfilled. He watched it happen. In Lamentations 2.20, it says, Look, Lord, and consider, whom have you ever treated like this? Should women eat their offspring, the children they have cared for? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Young and old lie together in the dust of the streets. My young men and young women have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered them without pity. Then in chapter 4, verse 10, it says, With their own hands, compassionate women 
have cooked their own children who became their food when my people were destroyed. And so Jeremiah is saying, I was there. I saw it. What God said would happen in his curses in Deuteronomy, what Moses said, it happened hundreds of years later after Mm -hmm. the people of Israel repeatedly disobeyed God. God not only punished the people who disobeyed, he also punished their children by these types of brutal practices that went on because they were so desperate Mm -hmm. and starving. This is really like disturbing, right? Yeah. And it's supposed to be disturbing. You're you're not supposed to read this and think, oh, what a nice story. (laughs) A lot of Bible stories are like that, like Noah's flood. You're not supposed to think, what a cute story. It's supposed to be terrifying. God wiped out the entire human race except for one family. Yeah. It shows the consequences of sin and the curse. It shows the judgment of God. And yeah, that should disturb us. That should put the fear of God in us. Right, exactly. (laughs) As we read that. But one of the reasons why this disturbs us, because we don't feel like God does this. Mm-hmm. We're like, this is not the God that I know. Mm-hmm. He doesn't punish children for the sins of their father. And, well, okay, it's the same God, but this is one of those cases where God has changed how he treats people over the course of time. Mm-hmm. And we actually can read this in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18. There's an entire chapter of the Bible devoted to how God has changed this particular aspect of how he treats people. And that's important. It's not just we're saying, surely that God of the Old Testament has changed because we feel like it's wrong, that we don't like this. But he said for himself in his word. Yes. Yeah. I love the opening of Ezekiel 18. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So if you've ever eaten anything very sour, you know there's something that happens in your mouth. We usually call it like it makes my lips pucker or something mm-hmm. like that. Well, they're the, the expression they were using is teeth set on edge. But there's something. You feel it in your mouth. It's physical. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, that's sour. Ah. Well, what he's saying, what was going on was the fathers were eating the sour grapes. But instead of that happening to the father's mouth, the kids' mouths were like, ooh, something sour. And what he's talking about is the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile into Babylon. So imagine you've got kids born in exile. They're suffering in exile in Babylon. They didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. It was their parents and their parents' parents and their parents' 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 parents. You know, it was multiple generations before them that sinned. And now they're stuck with the consequences. So their teeth are set on edge for something that their fathers ate, you know, and, and, and they're not enjoying that. Then throughout Ezekiel 18, God's saying, he just repeatedly from different angles, he's saying the same thing over and over again. He just says, if someone does the right thing, he'll be rewarded. If someone does the wrong thing, he'll be punished. If someone repents and believes in me, he'll be saved. Mm -hmm. If he rejects me, then he will be punished. And each person will die for their own sin. I will not punish the son for the sins of the father. I will not punish the father for the sins of the son. Each person will die for their own sin, and each person will be saved if they themselves believe individually. So God is changing how he deals with people. Yeah, so he's saying, look, I'm done with the national aspect. I'm not going to treat my people in mass as a nation. I'm also not going to punish future generations for the sins of this generation. I'm changing that. Now I will deal with each person as an individual. The reward or the punishment that you receive is all based on you and only you. And I think that's very reassuring. And Jeremiah 31 also mentions this proverb, the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And if you go and look at that, you'll see that's one of those new covenant promises where 
God is saying, hey, look, I'm going to establish a new covenant, Mm -hmm. and that covenant is going to be based on the forgiveness of sins. If you believe in me, if you repent and you believe in me, your sins as an individual will be forgiven. And what your fathers have done will have no bearing on you and your salvation. God is still operating that way today mm-hmm. because we are after the new covenant. Jesus has come and he established the new covenant. And so now we are living in the time period where the fathers can eat sour grapes and it's their own teeth that are set on edge and not their kids. And that's why when we look back at children being punished for their sins of their father, it seems weird to us mm-hmm. because God doesn't work that way anymore. He's doing it differently now. So to me, this is one very interesting example of a way that God has changed how he deals with people over time. And it has a lot of bearing on us today. It's important, though, to establish ways in which God has not changed how he deals with people. Like, I've been really emphasizing the point how he has changed, but there are certain ways that he has not changed how he deals with people. Matt, you and I were talking about this beforehand, that morality, there's a lot of morality that has not changed over time. You still can't murder. Right. You you still can't steal. Yeah. Those things are still against God's commands. Yes. Uh, We know that even as a Christian, we are required to walk in a way that pleases God and that obviously pleases him. Yeah. If you think about like murder is a great example because murder is one of the first sins that's ever recorded in the Bible. After the whole initial incident with Adam and Eve and eating the fruit, right? The first sin recorded in the Bible after that is a murder Mm -hmm. and God clearly frowns upon it. And then in Genesis 9, after the flood, God says, yes, this is wrong. You shouldn't murder. And then the Old Testament law comes around, and God says, you shouldn't murder. Jesus comes along, and not only does he say you shouldn't murder, he says you shouldn't even hate your brother. You shouldn't even insult your brother. He adds to it. Right. So murder is just keeps on being reiterated over and over and over again. No matter what time period we're talking about, murder has always been wrong and will always be wrong. Right. Uh, so there's a lot of morality that has not changed. Yet we have to be very careful that we don't listen to our culture and let our culture confuse us into thinking that morality has changed in areas where it has not changed. Well, and that's where it's really helpful to go to the scripture. As you said, the way God has related to his people that have changed, he specifically states those. Yes. And I, I think that's really important. Yeah. And then one of the passages that I think is really cool to think about when you think about how has God related to people over time is Romans chapter four. Mm-hmm. He uses one main example, the example of Abraham, but he also slips in an example from David. So you have two people from Israel's history, and he asks, how were these people made righteous? How were they forgiven of their sins? How were they justified? With both of them, he says, they were justified by faith, Mm -hmm. faith in the promise of God, which ultimately was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So Abraham, you know, who lived maybe around 2000 BC or something like that, he was saved by faith, not by works. And that faith, even though he didn't really fully understand it, his faith was in the promise of Jesus Christ. David rolls around. He's like, 1,200 years later, same thing. He confesses his sin to God. He repents. He trusts in Jesus, even though he doesn't really understand that that's fully, that that's what he's trusting in. And he understands that sacrifices, these sacrifices aren't really forgiving his sins. It's by repenting and believing in God, and somehow God is making it right, Mm -hmm. though he doesn't understand quite how yet. And then Jesus rolls around, and everyone's like, oh, this is how it's been working the whole time. And that's one of the emphasis in Romans chapter 3 is that it is the work of Jesus on the cross. That's what it's always been this whole time. Mm -hmm. So since the fall, there has only ever been one way to come to God. Jesus said it himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's how Abraham got to God. That's how David got to God. That's how any of these Old Testament saints got to God. That's how we get to God today. It's through Jesus Christ, by faith 
in the work of Jesus on the cross. So yeah, the surface aspects of how God relates to his people have changed over time. But underneath somewhere, there's this been this one promise that is always held true the whole time. And that is if you trust in the promise of God, you will be saved, you will be forgiven, you will be justified. It's not by works, it's by faith. Mm-hmm. That is held true all the way through, and that will hold true until Jesus returns. Amen. And That's important for us to remember, and Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we can trust in him, we trust in who he is, that he is our redeemer, he is our savior, he has always been. He's the one that the Bible has pointed to the whole time, from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation. Amen. Randall, thanks so much for joining us again. Another extremely challenging topic. I appreciate you helping us wade through this question. I hope you'll come back and join us soon. I will. Looking forward to it. Thank you for listening to the RCF podcast. If you'd like more information about Rody Christian Fellowship, you can visit us on the web at rodyfellowship.com or on Instagram at Rody Fellowship.